Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. After you hear our interview with today's guest, you may want to crank up the radio and play the song Danger Zone on your next car ride. We're talking with a former fighter pilot and Top Gun instructor, Vincent Aiello, about weather's impact on aviation. Weather forecasts are important for our everyday lives, particularly flying at supersonic speeds. We'll hear how these high-speed missions can be affected by inclement weather and which weather elements are among the most dangerous for the fighter pilots. And of course, we'll geek out on his past military career and learn what it's like to see the world at mock speeds. So buckle up and let's get started. Vincent, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Oh, you're welcome, Marshall. It's my pleasure to be here. Well, you know, one of the things that I ask every guest on the show is how'd you become a weather geek? But I guess in this regard, I need to ask, how'd you become an aviation or flight geek? Well, by being the latter, you are the former because this is true. Yeah. When I was a young man, I went to an air show and decided that was the life I wanted to live and was able to do that. And so big part of being a pilot, as you intimated, is an understanding of the weather because you can shake your fist at it all you want, but it is what it is. So you have to learn how it works and how you can work with it instead of against it. You know, I spent part of my career at NASA as a scientist, and I remember one of my colleagues was also a pilot and actually a mariner. And, and I remember her saying, any good meteorologist should, meteorologist should learn how to fly a plane or learn how to uh, pilot a boat because they involve so much understanding of the weather. And it sounds like you echo that completely. I do. I, I would I would be a little uh, remiss to say that I know all of the exact terminology and theories involved with weather and meteorology, but certainly there were parts of it that we understood very well. So let me give the listeners a little of your background. Uh, Vincent Aiello is the founder and host of the Fighter Pilot Podcast. He graduated from UCLA and the ROTC program, spent 25 years in aviation before retiring in 2017. He's accrued more than 3,800 flight hours, 705 carrier landings. And I want to talk about that because that's not trivial. And was a top gun instructor and air wings operation officer. Uh, he now flies for a major airline. So uh, clearly he's someone that knows about aviation and someone that, um, you know, it's interesting. I'll, I'll go ahead and admit this right off the top. I, I've flown for many years as a scientist and a professor that has to get around, but I, I, I am always so uncomfortable with flying. It's just always been one of those things. I think it's perhaps my fear of heights <laughs> and some other things, but I do it, but I haven't in a while. So I want to start here. Tell us about your career. Tell us about your military career, what you flew, uh, and some of your more interesting missions over your career. Sure. Well, I started off in pilot training where there is a crawl, walk, run approach. So my very first airplane was the T-34 Turbo Mentor. It's a low-wing propeller plane with tandem seating. And so you learn how to fly that and handle the procedures and emergencies that they might have. And then you move on in my case to my first jet was the T2 Buckeye. And then my second jet, my third trainer aircraft was the A4 Skyhawk. And so I had done sufficiently well in flight training. Then I was assigned the FA-18 Hornet. 
So I flew that for a number of years until the Super Hornet came along and then had a chance to fly that. Then Marshall, at the very end of my career, even though I was a naval aviator, there are about a dozen F-16s, which everyone thinks of as an Air Force fighter, but the Navy has some of those up in Fallon, Nevada, just east of Reno. So I had a chance to fly those as well. And as you said, accrued just just under 4,000 flight hours total and really had just an amazing career with a lot of wonderful opportunities. You know, and I, and I, 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 I'm talking with um, Vince Naiello about uh, his career in, in military and aviation. You know, I grew up here in Georgia and I went to air shows. I used to love going to air shows, I guess at mm. Dobbins Air Force Base here in Marietta, mm-hmm. which is just north of, of Atlanta. And we'd have the Thunderbirds and the, the Blue Angels and all the various aircraft come in. So as I'm listening to this, it's just bringing back memories for all of those times where I used to go to those air shows and think about some of these <laughs> aircraft. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now you mentioned that, you know, all the different types of aircraft that you fly. I mean, I mean, and, and again, I don't know if you can mention it, but you, it, it says in your bio that you now fly for a major airline. So I'm assuming that means you're flying some of the larger aircraft. I mean, are, are there differences in, in flying a commercial airplane versus a fire jet? I imagine it's a very different handle. Well, I mean, from the point of view of if you pull back, the uh, houses get smaller, you push forward, the houses get bigger. That's the same. (laughs) Sure. But otherwise, of course, it's different. I mean, in the fighter jet, I am the master of my domain. And if I decide I want to go upside down or pull five or six Gs, I can do that. But uh, mom and grandma on the back uh, don't appreciate when you do that (laughs) and you upset their movie or or drink. So, um, so yeah, airline flying is totally different and it's, it's okay. It's, it's, it's fine in so much as it's not exciting, which is good. Uh, as you said earlier, most people are like you. They have some trepidation in flying. And so we try to make it as uneventful as possible to just get you safely and expeditiously from point A to point B. So it's something I find I have an aptitude for and and I have the experiences so that they hired me to do it. And I do it well, I hope. And otherwise, it's it's just one of those things. I want to get back to your you. you, So you've actually landed an an aircraft, an aircraft on a ship that's moving. Talk about that experience, because I know it, you know, I, I, you know, I've I've known people in the Navy and Navy pilots and so forth. And I've heard about that. That really puts you in an elite territory pilots that do that. So talk about why it's different and what's actually the most dangerous part of it. Well, the most dangerous part, of course, is the last few seconds as aircraft and metal meet over the ocean. And so a lot of things can go wrong and have. And of course, you can get on YouTube or other equivalent channels and see examples of that. Um, I think it's important for your listeners to keep in mind that you don't just one day go out and hop in a fighter jet and land on a carrier. You build up to it over time. And so from my earliest landings in flight school, you start to get those procedures down so that you have your aircraft in the right attitude. You're approaching the runway in the right spot. And the runways, by the way, in the Navy, Marshall, are painted to look like the carrier flight deck. I mean, there's as much as you can, right? It's a big, long runway, but they'll have some of the markings, what they call the carrier box. And then next to it, they'll have the same light system that you'll use when you go to the ship. And so every landing is supposed to be a practice for that. It'd be like a batter stepping up and just getting pitch after pitch after pitch and swinging and getting to the point where you can see the the threads on the ball spinning as it's coming at you. So that when you do go out to the ship for the first time, then you've seen it. But sure, it's still nerve wracking and you have procedures that you follow. And and just getting to the point of uh, the podcast topic or niche, if you will, is certainly weather plays a big part of that. And 
over my 700 landings, there were several where weather played a factor. I mean, it's difficult enough as it is, but when thunderstorms are going off all around you, particularly at night, because it's very dark in the open ocean, and the light now is causing you to have some sort of disorientation, that can be a real problem. Or if you're flying in the Persian or Arabian Gulf where sand can be an issue, then you can't see until the last moments. And so it really does play into the procedures and make it even that much more challenging. And I, I want to thank you for that transition because I wanted to now shift to the weather element of, sure. of aviation. And that's really interesting because, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a, I teach a mesoscale meteorology course here at the University of Georgia. And we talk about thunderstorms and gust fronts and outflow boundaries and so forth. Uh, it's really interesting because I, yeah, I can imagine just landing on a ship is difficult enough. But then I can imagine if you've got crosswinds and sort of gust fronts and outflow boundaries associated with nearby thunderstorms. And it's interesting you mentioned dust. Uh, I know that I, you know, even with the recent cargo ship that was stuck in the Suez Canal, hmm. uh, there was a significant dust storm leading up to and prior to that, that I think essentially caused the ship to, because of all of the containers to just severe them sort of list because of this, it created a sail effect with all the containers. So talk about just in general, not necessarily just from an aircraft carrier standpoint, but the what you perceive to be the biggest weather related threats or risk associated with aviation. Well, aviation in general or Navy aviation? Yeah, uh, Navy aviation first, but then I'd want to, because I imagine sure. turbulence is a problem when you're carrying passengers. Maybe it's not so much, uh, you know, no, don't worry about it as much, but yeah, Navy right. first, and then we'll go to commercial. Yeah. Well, and to your earlier point, Marshall, the one nice thing about an aircraft carrier is that it can afford to turn and point into the wind. So imagine if you had a big long runway uh, there in Atlanta near you, where it was somehow could be turned and face always into the wind, the carrier has that privilege. So crosswinds are not a significant factor. Uh, what is a significant factor is reduced visibility, thunderstorms, of course, uh, precipitation. And I don't know if this falls under weather or not, but certainly the sea state. Because if the ship is moving because of swells and waves, then that creates a moving target, which the, the ship is already moving, but it's a steady movement through the sea. But when the ship is heaving up and down, that's a different story. And so that adds to it as well. So I had an experience in the Persian Gulf. Uh, when, in fact, it was on this very day as we're recording, April 21st, but it was years ago. And I only remember that because it's my brother's birthday. And I wrote him a story about the, uh, I, I couldn't offer him any kind of gift, but I, I sent him an email with a story of trying to land on the night of his birthday. And there was this massive thunderstorm. And at night, what we do is certain procedures where we hold a certain distance from the ship. And then we take our turns coming down one at a time, about a minute apart. And there was lightning going off everywhere. And I was coming down and it was just disorienting. And then at one point, I must have gotten either too close to the one in front of me or the aircraft in front of me had a delay or something. But then they spun me 360 degrees to make more room. And doing that just added to my dis uh, disorientation. And so by the time I came down, where the only source now for landing is the lights on the ship. And these ships, Marshall, by the way, if you stood them on their tail, they're as tall as the Empire State Building. I mean, they're enormous, but they're also a lesson in perspective because when you're trying to land on them, they're tiny. 
<laughs> and so all I see are these lights. And because there's no peripheral or cultural lighting, I can't tell if I'm upside down or right side up. And I think I remember saying, hey, uh, I've got vertigo. And all that means is to the landing signal officers that are on the back of the ship, their pilots on collateral duty helping me land. They just know to keep an eye on me in case I start drifting left or right or wherever. Yeah. And so Thankfully, I was able to do the procedures with muscle memory correctly. And with their help, the landing signal officers, I came down and landed. But boy, it was memorable. I'll say that. <laughs> you can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And I'm speaking with Vincent Aiello. And what a... <laughs> So I'm just thinking about as we came out of that last break, uh, I'm, I'm worried about my little fear of flying and he's landing uh, high speed jets with vertigo on a moving target uh, that you know, kind of puts things in perspective. One other aspect, I mentioned turbulence earlier, but I want to stay with the Navy and landing on a ship for a moment before we broaden the discussion. Sure. Is there an issue with as you're I, I don't know how many particular jets might be landing on this aircraft carrier in sequence at any given time. But I was always curious about whether there's any wake turbulence. You know, I, I see oftentimes you have this wake turbulence off the off the wings of aircraft. I see that even in commercial jets and in and, uh, and, and Hartsville and various other places as well. Uh, do, do those kind of turbulent flows impact uh, your operating procedures at all landing takeoffs and so forth? Not generally. Um, the ship will be moving in such a way that with the natural wind, they'll generally have about 30 knots of wind coming over the carrier. And we're approaching at about 130 knots. And so any wake turbulence, which is relatively small from the stubby wings of a fighter, are not a factor. Uh, but what is a factor, Marshall, and you're on a good point here, is uh, the wind effect of, if you think of an aircraft carrier, it's a great big flat deck, but there is that one structure called the island. Well, what happens is the wind gets blanked in some ways by that island. And as the wind is coming over the flight deck, which is about 60 feet above the water, what happens is after it goes off the back of the carrier, it drops down to fill that void, but then sort of bounces off the water and comes up again. And so as you're doing a landing, there will be some variance in the wind due to the effects of the wind around the aircraft carrier. So as you are out just a little bit further as you're coming in on the approach, you might have an updraft from that wind that I mentioned a moment ago is bouncing up. And then right as you pull a little power to compensate for that, guess what? Now you're in that zone where it's dropping off the back of the ship. And so you're in what we'd call a big suck hole anyway. I know that's not an official term, but that's what we use. And so you find yourself getting out of sequence with the power that you need. And once again, that's why there are other pilots on the back of the ship to observe you and give you control input calls if, if needed to keep you safe because uh, a 25,000 or 40,000 pound uh, airplane hitting a 100,000 ton steel ship, it's not going to go too well for the aircraft. So it can be very sensational if you mess that up. 
Interesting. Now, I know, for example, with commercial airlines, they have meteorology departments. And I know this for a fact, but shout out to Emily Wilson, one of our graduates from my program at the University of Georgia, who works for Delta Airlines in their meteorology department. Um, And uh, we've even had the FedEx meteorology group on Weather Geeks before as well. Uh, I imagine there are weather officers on on the the Navy ships as well, or, or that, that that you're briefing with before flights or during flight or so forth. Is that how how it works in, in the Navy? Absolutely, and for the same reasons as you have the folks at the carriers. Uh, by carriers, I mean Delta and, and FedEx, as you mentioned. But for the aircraft carrier, it's twofold. Number one, we need the weather information for around the ship because we want to expeditiously and safely launch and recover aircraft. And by the way, you made a comment before about you weren't sure how many, generally about a dozen to 14 or so aircraft per cycle, uh, typically. At any rate, there's also a need for combat weather, if you will, right? Because if I'm going to drop, let's say, some ordnance on a target, and I'm expecting to be able to see that target with a forward-looking infrared, but I didn't check with the weather, and lo and behold, there a storm or a dust storm and I won't be able to do that, well, then maybe a GPS guided weapon would have been better. So yes, we do have those professionals on board for those reasons. Yeah. I, I, I remember meeting many of them during grad school because I, I there were at Florida State where I, I went to grad school there, the, the, the military officers would come in and get some training in weather at these top universities. So definitely recall it. Now I want to shift to the, the, the commercial side because okay. you know, we often talk about sort of weather and its importance. And I think, again, I mentioned people are certainly familiar with turbulence <laughs> and the uh, discomfort involved there. In fact, one of my colleagues at University of Georgia, shout out to Dr. John Knox, uh, helped co-develop one of the clear air turbulence algorithms that are, I know that um, NOAA and the Aviation Weather Center and others utilize the Knox Aeroid Turbulence, clear air turbulence algorithm. So I want to give a shout out to John. But there are other aspects of weather that impede both in flight and also just the delays at airports. I think I, I was taught telling students once that you'd be surprised at how much delay is caused by fog at air, air, airports, not just the big thunderstorms and so forth. Uh, talk about sort of your experience as a commercial aviator and in terms of the weather sort of routine. I mean, again, I, I'm sure you get briefings from weather folks there from the involved. Then, So what's your weather routine as a pilot? Sure. Well, and in that regard, well, first off, a caveat, I have been an airline pilot for four years, so I do not claim to be the expert. There are many who retire after 30 plus year careers and my hat's off to them. But based on my experiences, I'm a bit spoiled now, Marshall, I'll be honest, because in the past in the military, you had to do your own, not research, but you had to go get the information. And now when I show up at the airplane and get to the flight deck, it's there ready for me. And there's almost nothing that I need to make a decision about because it's going to be told to me that, you know, Hey, you can't go (laughs) if it's that bad. Um, But if there is fog, for example, and that's a great example, all fog does is slow down the procedures and the, and the policies are, I should say the schedules pre COVID anyway, were built such that they had it down to a, a fine science and art, I suppose. But in other words, they knew that they could operate, so many aircraft so quickly if everybody could see each other. But now you introduce some sort of impediment like fog, and now you have to slow down the operation because you don't want to bump into something. You have to follow lights and certain procedures. And thankfully, airports these days are equipped with that. So fog is is one, and I agree with you. Turbulence is a big one because we want, at least at my airline, the passengers to be comfortable. I think FedEx probably still cares about turbulence because of the stress loads and, and the uh, heavy you know, 
cargo they're carrying. Um, and so that's a big one, but really so is the convective activity. So if there are thunderstorms or uh, if there's icing or hail or anything that could damage the aircraft, then that's an issue because anytime the aircraft is out of service, now you again have an impediment to service. So for example, a quick story, Marshall, we left out of Atlanta one night in a thunderstorm and there was lightning going off everywhere and we were just going to Orlando. So it was an hour flight and there was suddenly a very bright flash right in front of the cockpit. I mean, it, it looked blue to me. And of course, both of our night visions got kind of temporarily blinded. The airplane is flying itself. So there was never a hazard. Um, but we both agreed, wow, that was okay. <laughs> Interesting. So when we landed, <clears throat> excuse me, we, we made an, a note to maintenance, hey, check aircraft for possible lightning strike. And sure enough, that aircraft had to be sidelined. Now it was the last flight for the night anyway. But the next morning after our layover, when we came in, we saw that aircraft off to the side and we happened to catch one of the maintenance folks. And they said, in fact, a lightning bolt had struck the nose, traveled through the aircraft and exited the tail and wow. did cause some degree of damage. But the interesting thing is these aircraft are built said that the passengers are never at risk. You know, they have the, the skeleton, if you will, built in such a way that it just takes all that energy and moves it out the back. And so, but on the other hand, they had to bring in another airplane because that one wasn't functional for a time. So yes, weather is definitely a factor for the commercial services. Yeah, and you know, as I, as I grew up as a kid and I just, again, I, I, I as much as I was all I'm uncomfortable flying at times, I was always always still very fascinated. I would go to a Hartsville with my uncle and cousins, and we'd just sit there and watch planes take off and land. And that was an era when there were lots of different airlines. So you'd see That's all right. kinds of different brands out there. Yeah. You know, it's three or four airlines now, at least coming out, like, in and out of Atlanta. <laughs> but my, I guess my point is at that time, I still remember as a kid, you know, Planes had trouble with things like microburst and wind shear and the FAA and the National Weather Service, they have this sort of network of Doppler radars or terminal Doppler radars now uh, that can detect these, uh, detect these abrupt changes in wind, which we call wind shear and these microbursts virtually eliminating this idea of sort of microburst induced uh, landing and plane uh, and takeoff crashes and so forth. So I, I just wanted to take a moment to sort of illustrate how sort of this advanced meteorological technology, it literally has made aviation um, more safe. Another thing that I know is a hazard is icing. Uh, I, I don't know how much of a hazard it is, or if you fly in places that deal with icing quite a bit, um, but uh, tell us about the, you know, why icing is a problem for flight. Well, icing is a problem because these aircraft are designed with certain airfoils on their wings and performance that is not accounting for a change in shape, right? So we don't we don't change the shape of a wing on a 757, but if ice is forming on the wing, then suddenly it's a new wing. And so not only is it a different shape that hasn't been tested, but it's it's heavier. And so you have all these problems with lift generation, with excess weight. And so icing can really be a detriment to a safe operation. And in fact, there are plenty of stories of where that's true. And so, yes, I have operated in cold environments in Denver, for example, where if you come in in the morning and there is ice on the wings because the airplane sat overnight, well, guess what? You go to a certain pad where I think everyone's seen this, right? And, and I've operated out of New York and Boston and other way. Uh, places. And so they have these uh, special trucks and crew who will de-ice your aircraft. So they'll blow off everything and then they'll apply an agent, which is not just water because water, even if it was warm water, would 
probably freeze fairly quickly. And the last thing you want is a big sheet of ice on there. So they have chemicals and various things. And I presume they're environmentally safe these days. And the idea is it will prevent the buildup of ice. And so that's why generally for passengers who say, darn it, why don't they do this before I hop on? Well, and that's a fair criticism, but the idea is we're going to do it as close to takeoff as possible. And so even if it's a minor inconvenience for you, hey, we apologize, but it's best to get you there safely. And so we, uh, we'll do it right before takeoff. And then by the time we get to the runway, it should still be protective. And now we know our wings are, as we would say, clean. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And I'm speaking with Vince Niello about all things aviation, weather, supersonic flying. I want to talk about your podcast now um, because I, I, I see it on your shirt, the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Yeah. Uh, tell us a little bit about your podcast. Oh, before I before we get to the podcast, sure. I did want to ask one quick follow-up question about weather because we've had this volcanic activity recently. And there have been this astounding sort of satellite images of plume smoke plumes from these volcanoes down in the Caribbean. Uh, have you had any in- encounters with volcanic ash or dust in your, your pilot experience? Um, yes and no. So I have flown down to Central America a couple times. And the first time I remember looking at the report that was available for the pilots on the flight deck, and it talked about volcanic activity. And I thought, oh, hey, I've been taught to concerned, you know, be concerned about this. What do you think, Captain? And he said, uh, you'll see, it's not a problem. And in those cases, uh, as you may know, Marshall, there are many volcanoes that are active down in that area, but they're just kind of simmering. So there's a little bit of smoke just by the crown, but not like enormous eruptions up into our flight atmosphere. So sure enough, we fly over, I look down, I say, oh, that's kind of neat, but you know, not, not a factor. <laughs> um, but yes, volcanic ash is certainly a consideration because of the impact it can have on your systems and your engines. But was that the question? I might have forgotten what the question was. No, 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 that was, no. I was curious. Okay. No, you. No, let, let's talk about your podcast. Now. Okay, Tell us about the fighter pilot podcast. Well, so I spent, as you said earlier, thank you, about a quarter century serving in the United States Navy. And I knew two things when I left uh, my career there, Marshall. I knew that, number one, I didn't want to walk away from that career just with cold turkey. But number two, I knew that it always met people that had been interested in my career. Wow, you ride in a fighter on an ejection seat. What is an ejection seat? What do you, what, do you, what is it like when you refuel? How do you land on a carrier? Wait, in the nighttime? And so I looked around. I'd had a positive podcast experience on someone else's show. And I looked around and I said, wait a minute, nobody is talking about military aviation. I think I could do this. Maybe maybe I'm not trained in this, but I'll start it and maybe someone better will come along. And so I, uh, you know, started on a, on a lark with a pod, a, uh, I should say a microphone and a laptop. And I just put it out there and I told people, Hey, this is me. 
what you're going to get is authentic, factual, and personal. I'm not going to try to be something I'm not. And if I make a mistake, I'll tell you, but we want it to be educational and informative and entertaining. And so here we are up to about 110 episodes and it's a lot of fun and people really respond because just like you said earlier, Marshall, when you went to air shows as a kid, people just have a love for aviation and particularly military aviation, which has always kind of made me a little curious because in the end, our business is war and killing, but I think they love the swagger of the men and women who fly. And I think they love the noise and speed of the aircraft. And I think we try to accept that. Well, unfortunately they are designed for something a little violent, but they, they certainly do love military aviation. Well, and we want to thank you, first of all, for your service uh, to the, to our country and all of those men and women that do so. Uh, and, and indeed, they have a purpose, but I, I think part of that purpose is protecting our freedoms as well. So we, we really thank that and try to keep keep things in perspective and and hope they aren't used, but certainly uh, understand that uh, it's a part of the society we live in. Uh, who are some? I know you've had the Hurricane Hunters on. We've had them on Weather Geeks for certain. I know yeah. you've had them as guests. What kind, what kind of people do you have on on your show as guests? Well, despite the name Fighter Pilot Podcast, we have anyone involved with military aviation. So you're right. We've had the hurricane hunters. We've had people to represent all the various fighters and attack and bombers out there. We've had World War II veterans, 98, 99-year-old gentlemen who were shot down in World War II and were held as guests of the Germans. Um, let's see. Gosh, we've, we've had the SR-71. We've had spy planes like that. We've had tankers. Um, and we've even had a Judge Advocate General come on and talk about the law of armed conflict and rules of engagement. We recently had an episode on DARPA. That's the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency and some of the machine learning and AI that's coming into being, if you will, with, with air combat. And so we, we cover a wide range of topics. And again, people find, I find rather that people really enjoy the uh, the discussion. And when it comes right down to it, of course, we also talk about some of the movies and things because most people's experiences from Hollywood. And I spend a lot of my time trying to debunk some of those. No, so do we as, as scientists with some <laughs> yeah. of the weather and client uh, tornado movies and hurricane movies. Oh, sure. I always remind people that they're, it's entertainment. So they really, you know, inflate things. I mean, ET really doesn't exist, this entertainment. But yeah, we see a lot of that same problem with weather and climate and disasters as well and debunking. Now you had, you had the hurricane hunters on and I, I'm curious that if another part of your career at some point later, would you consider lying into a hurricane if a hurricane hunter job was offered to you? <laughs> well, I think it's worth pointing out before I answer that, that the, the men and women who do that are specifically trained to do that and uh, have a special equipment to do it and doing it for a reason. Uh, so yes, I'm certainly not going to take my airline and, oh, there's a hurricane. Come on, everyone, let's go fly through it. <laughs> uh, I don't think the company would appreciate, nor would uh, the folks in the back. But I mean, golly, yeah. If they said, hey, we appreciate you doing an episode on us, come on down and fly with us. Sure, I'd do it. Why not? Really? Yeah. You know, I, you know, I was a researcher at NASA before moving to the university and I, I had an opportunity in a research flight to fly into a hurricane, but I chickened out. Um, but it's certainly uh, one of the more fascinating but important <laughs> aspects of weather forecasting for us. You know, we'll, we'll let you off the hook, Marshall, because you already shared your somewhat uh, resistance. <laughs> yeah, yeah, anyway, just a, so, yeah, ex exactly. So you're no not fool. A, Why would you go do something you already don't like and do it even more dangerous? Yeah, let's let's go punch through an <laughs> eye wall with deep yeah. convection penetrating to the stratosphere. Right? That's right. But yeah, but you know, I want to kind of circle back to you know something that um, you know one of my producers asked in, in some of our production notes. Yeah, circling back to your military career, and maybe this is relevant to your commercial career too. But what what type of weather 
together would actually cause a mission to be scrubbed. Is there any circumstance, even with a vital mission that you might be on, where weather would just cause the mission to be scrubbed? What, what would what would rise to that level? Well, it, so then now you're touching on how important is the mission, right? So if it's a no-fail mission, then self-sacrifice may be required. And so you're going to do whatever you can to, to make the mission happen. On the other hand, if it's, hey, we don't want any blue losses, we would call it. In other words, it's not worth losing an airplane or a person. Well, then you're going to have slightly more restrictive weather. So anything that won't allow aircraft to get off either the runway or the carrier, obviously, is going to stop you. Um, if you have only certain weapons, again, as my earlier example, uh, visual weapons, then anything that's going to occlude the target, whether it's fog or sand or, or clouds or whatever. Um, otherwise... We have, believe it or not, Marshall, we have limitations normally for the uh, strength of wind that we are willing to fly in. And the reason is, is you can fly just fine in an aircraft in wind, but if you eject, once you land, you could be dragged to your death. And in fact, uh, this happened to a friend of mine, I'm, I'm it still breaks my heart, but he and uh, his wingman collided over Iraq in 2004 or five, and they survived the collision. They ejected at high altitude. They floated down in their parachutes, and when they landed, unfortunately, they were both dragged to their deaths at about 35 mile an hour winds because they were when they hit so hard they were momentarily incapacitated. But then, as they were dragged on the surface of the ground, they were unable to release themselves. And so, we have wind requirements that again we can waive. But generally, that can stop us as well. So there's a host of weather phenomena that can stop us. Yeah, and that's interesting. I would have never thought. I mean, it's, it's always the interesting things that you don't think about that mm. can have implications for you and your operations. That, and in that case, it really wasn't even related to the flight in the plane. So that's that was an right. interesting little nugget of information. You know, we're God, it's time's flying when you're just really geeking out, which is what we like to do on Weather Geeks. And we've been geeking out here on some really interesting things, but we're running out of time. I want to give you an opportunity to tell us where we can find your podcast and find you on social media. Well, I appreciate that, Marshall. And if we have 30 seconds, I have a weather mystery that I've always wanted to uh, Please, figure yeah. out, and you can help me. But um, first off, uh, well, I, let's ask that first. So I was in a four training in Meridian, Mississippi. So not too far from you relatively. Mm -hmm. And it was that time between dawn and sunrise when all of a sudden in, in the span of about 15 minutes, it seems to get really light, right? It goes mm -hmm. from, from uh, nighttime to, to dawn. And we had walked in, we'd walked out of the hangar. We walked into maintenance control to read about the book, talk to the maintenance guys, uh, read about the jet, I should say in the maintenance book. And when we walked back outside 10 minutes later, that was when that light transition happened. And all of a sudden it was zero, zero in fog. And so what I'm wondering, it was just clear when we went in, we could see the stars, but when we came out, it was complete fog. And I've always wondered what the phenomena was that caused that. Was that just the atmosphere heating up because the sun was making its way to the horizon there? Or what, what do you think? Could, so could you said it went that? from clearing to fog. Correct. Yeah. And so it could have been a situation to get fog. The key point is we have to drop down to the dew point. Uh, the dew point is the, the very common designator in meteorology where uh, it represent a point, represents a point where the atmosphere can no longer hold water as gas, as a water vapor. And so it condenses out. And so I don't know what the elevation is of that particular air base or whatnot, but I don't know if it's 50 feet, if I remember. Okay. So you could have had a situation where you were teetering close to the, the temperature 
the air temperature was teetering close enough to the dew point temperature that there may have been a, a, a dramatic drop mm-hmm. uh, to the dew point. And so you got the condensational fog uh, rapidly uh, and, and it may have been, you know, related to sort of the, I don't know, again, whether there was any heating because the direct solar insulation from the sun can, you often hear people say the sun, the fog is burning off. That's actually an incorrect term, but it's often (laughs) used by people. Uh, In fact, fog just goes away as you elevate the air temperature back above the dew point. Uh So technically, I guess that could be considered burning off. So something dropped the temperature to the dew point dramatically. And so that's I I would need a little bit more information about what was what the other ambient conditions were like. But, yeah, we've we know that there are these onsets, there's these channeling, these low elevation valleys, even around bridge overpasses and so forth. Mm. Uh, So if you got a injection of moisture. So really interesting phenomena that you shared there. Yeah. Well, we were perplexed because we didn't feel like we'd been inside very long, but it was just long enough for it to go from night to dawn and for the fog to just suddenly appear. And of course, unfortunately for us, as we stated earlier, that's not an airport that has the low visibility uh, you know, implements. So we ended up canceling. And so it was just one of those things that's always stuck. Which, you know, it's interesting because even tomorrow morning, as we're taping this, uh, we're taping this here in, uh, on April 21st, as you just mentioned, mm-hmm. uh, we've got a strong cold front that's about to come through North Georgia. And I've been looking at the temperatures because I already started planting my vegetable garden out in the back. <laughs> And I was looking at the temperature sequence from tonight into early tomorrow morning, uh, Thursday morning, and the coldest temperature is going to be around 630 tomorrow morning, 6 to 630 uh, as the frontal passage comes through. So my suspicion is this was a similar situation where you probably reach your coldest point in the day at that moment in time. So you got close enough to that viewpoint to reach uh, it. But uh, yeah, and then that, that can happen sometimes at the oddest moments in time, particularly yeah. if you got strong cold frontal passage. So, yeah, yeah. So I'm but I love the fact that you gave was an opportunity to geek out on fog because maybe some people don't go. really understand how fog forms. So we oh, like yeah. to ed- educate on this show as well. But so where can people find you on social media and in your podcast? Well, we're just about everywhere. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Patreon, YouTube, and we even have a website. Everything is fighter pilot podcast. So if you just start putting those in, you'll find us. And we've got a great community. We have a lot of fun and we are just trying to spread the word. As you said at the beginning, uh, Marshall, the aircraft, the weapon systems, and most importantly, the people. And it's really the stories that everybody loves. You can get online and, and search for the speed and number of G's and the mock of everything that we fly. But it's the folks that talk about these weather phenomena, for example, and we've had some weather stories or, you know, intercepting Russian bears in uh, over Alaska in the Cold War days or whatever the case is. And we're having a lot of fun. So if military aviation interests you, we, you know, come check us out. And you can also email us at questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com. So yeah, we're having a lot of fun. Yeah, and I'm certain that some of our Weather Geeks listeners are going to take you up on that because I, I know the awesome listeners that we have and they have very varied interest in, in exposure. Now, I, I, we have to get out of here, but before I do, it is that time of the week where we acknowledge our geek of the week. We like to highlight a scientist superstar, a great geologist, or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast. This episode's geek of the week is David Podgore. David works as a geographic and weather videographer who loves to reminisce about weather events and we can certainly relate to that. One of the amazing weather events he recalls is the 2012 North American derecho, which plowed across more than 600 miles, causing nearly $2.9 billion in damage. If you want to follow along with David's Twitter, check him out at Ravens326. 
at Ravens326. And if you want to be the geek of the week or know someone that should, be sure to check out our social media pages. Vincent, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. You're welcome, Marshall. Congratulations to David and thanks for having me. It's been a lot of fun. And thank you all again for listening and continuing to geek out with us. We'll talk to you next time. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. See you next time. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.